0: Chapter fourteen of The Nebulicote by John Meade Faulkner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter fourteen. Westray returned to Colerne by the evening train. It was near ten o'clock, and he was finishing his supper when some one tapped at the door, and Miss Euphemia Jolliffe came in. I beg your pardon for interrupting you, sir, she said. I am a little anxious about Mr. Charnel. "'He was not in at tea-time and has not come back since. "'I thought you might know perhaps where he was. "'It is years since he has been out so late in the evening.' "'I haven't the least idea where he is,' Westrow said rather testily, "'for he was tired with a long day's work. "'I suppose he has gone out somewhere to supper.' "'No one ever asks Mr. Shawn out. "'I do not think he can be gone out to supper.' "'Oh, well, I dare say he will turn up in due course. "'Let me hear before you go to bed if he's come back.' and he poured himself out another cup of tea, for he was one of those thin-blooded and old womanly men who elevate the drinking of tea, instead of other liquids, into a special merit. He could not understand, he said, why everybody did not drink tea. It was so much more refreshing. One could work so much better after drinking tea. He turned to some calculations for the section of a tie-rod with which Sir George Farquhar had at last consented to strengthen the south side of the tower and did not notice how time passed till there came another irritating tap, and his landlady reappeared. "'It is nearly twelve o'clock,' she said, "'and we have seen nothing of Mr. Chardle. I am so alarmed. "'I am sure I am very sorry to trouble you, Mr. Westray, but my niece and I are so alarmed.' "'I don't quite see what I am to do,' Westray said, looking up. "'Could he have gone out with Lord Blandamer? "'Do you think Lord Blandamer could have asked him to fording?' "'Lord Blandamer was here this afternoon.' Miss Jolliffe answered, but he never saw Mr. Sharnel, because Mr. Sharnel was not at home. "'Oh, Lord Blandamer was here, was he?' asked Westray. "'Did he leave no message for me?' "'He asked if you were in, but he left no message for you. "'He drank a cup of tea with us. "'I think he came in merely as a friendly visitor,' Miss Jolliffe said with some dignity. "'I think he came in to drink a cup of tea with me. "'I was unfortunately at the Dorcas meeting when he first arrived.' "'but on my return he drank tea with me.' "'It is curious. "'He seems generally to come on Saturday afternoons,' said Westray. 'Are "'Are you always at the Dorcas meeting on Saturday afternoons?' "'Yes,' Miss Jolliffe said. "'I am always at the meeting on Saturday afternoons.' There was a minute's pause. Westray and Miss Jolliffe were both thinking. "'Well, well,' Westray said. "'I shall be working for some time yet, and will let Mr Charnall in if he comes.' "'but I suspect that he's been invited to to spend the night at fording. "'Anyhow, you can go to bed with a clear conscience, Miss Jolliffe. "'You've waited up far beyond your usual time.' "'So Miss Euphemia went to bed, and left Westray alone. "'And a few minutes later the four quarter-chimes rang, "'and the tenor struck twelve, "'and then the bells fell to playing a tune "'as they did every three hours, day and night. "'Those who dwell near St. Sepulchre's take no note of the bells. "'The ear grows so accustomed to them that quarter by quarter and hour by hour strike unperceived. If strangers come to stop under the shadow of the church, the clangor disturbs their sleep the first night, and after that they too hear nothing. So Westray would sit working late night by night, and could not say whether the bells had rung or not. It was only when attention was too wide awake that he heard them, but he heard them this night, and listened while they played the sober melody of Mount Ephraim. The storm had passed. The moon, which was within a few hours of the full, rode serenely in the blue heaven with a long bank of dappled white cloud below, whose edge shone with an amber iridescence. He looked over the clustered roofs and chimneys of the town. The upward glow from the marketplace showed that the lamps were still burning, though he could not see them. Then, as the glow lessened gradually and finally became extinct, he knew that the lights were being put out because midnight was past. The moonlight glittered on the roofs, which were still wet, and above all towered the gigantic sable mass, the centre tower of St. Sepulchre's. Westray felt a curious physical tension. He was excited, he could not tell why. He knew that sleep would be impossible if he were to go to bed. It was an odd thing that Charnall had not come home. Charnall must have gone to Fording. He had spoken vaguely of an invitation to Fording that he had received. "'but if he had gone there he must have taken some things with him for the night, "'and he had not taken anything, or Miss Euphemia would have said so. "'Stay, he would go down to Charles' room and see if he could find any trace of his taking luggage. "'Perhaps he left some message to explain his absence.' "'He lit a candle and went down, down the great well staircase where the stone steps echoed under his feet. "'A patch of bright moonshine fell on the stairs from the skylight at the top, "'and a noise of someone moving in the attics, "'told him that Miss Jolliffe was not yet asleep. "'There was nothing in the organist's room "'to give any explanation of his absence. "'The light of the candle was reflected on the front of the piano, "'and Westray shuddered involuntarily "'as he remembered the conversation "'which he had had a few weeks before with his friend, "'and Mr. Sharnel's strange hallucinations "'as to the man that walked behind him with a hammer. "'He looked into the bedroom with a momentary apprehension "'that his friend might have been seized with illness "'and be lying all this time unconscious. "'But there was no one there.' The bed was undisturbed, so he went back to his own room upstairs. But the night had turned so chill that he could no longer bear the open window. He stood with his hand upon the sash, looking out for a moment before he pulled it down, and noticed how the centre tower dominated and prevailed over all the town. It was impossible, surely, that this rock-like mass could be insecure. How puny and insufficient to uphold such a tottering jarred seemed to the tyrods whose section he was working out and then he thought of the crack above the south transept arch that he had seen from the organ loft, and remembered how Charnel in D-flat had been interrupted by the discovery. Why, Mr. Charnel might be in the church. Perhaps he had gone down to practice and been shut in. Perhaps his key had broken and he could not get out. He wondered that he had not thought of the church before. In a minute he had made up his mind to go to the Minster. As resident architect he possessed a master key which opened all the doors, He would walk round and see if he could find anything of the Missy Organist before going to bed. He strode quickly through the deserted streets. The lamps were all put out, for Cologne economised gas at times of full moon. There was nothing moving. His footsteps rang on the pavement and echoed from wall to wall. He took the shortcut by the wharves and in a few minutes came to the old bonding-house. The shadows hung like black velvet in the spaces between the brick buttresses that shored up the wall towards the quay. He smiled to himself as he thought of the organist's nervousness, of those strange fancies as to someone lurking in the black hiding-holes, and as to buildings being in some way connected with man's fate. He knew that his smile was assumed, for he felt all the while the oppression of the loneliness, of the sadness of a half-ruined building, of the gurgling mutter of the river, and instinctively quickened his pace. He was damp when he passed the spot, and again that night, as he looked back, he saw the strange effect of light and darkness which produced the impression of someone standing in the shadow of the last buttress space. The illusion was so perfect that he thought he could make out the figure of a man in a long, loose cape that napped in the wind. He passed the wrought-iron gate now, he was in the churchyard, and it was then that he first became aware of a soft, low, droning sound which seemed to fill the air all about him. He stopped for a moment to listen. What was it? Where was the noise? He grew more distinct as he passed along the flagged stone path which led to the north door. Yes, it certainly came from inside the church. What could it be? What could anyone be doing in the church at this hour of night? He was in the north porch now, and then he knew what it was. It was a low note of the organ, a pedal note. He was almost sure it was that very pedal point which the organist had explained to him with such pride. The sound reassured him nothing had happened to Mr. Charnel. He was practising in the church. It was only some mad freak of his to be playing so late. He was practising that service Charnel in D-flat. He took out his key to unlock the wicket, and was surprised to find it already open, because he knew that it was the organist's habit to lock himself in. He passed into the great church. It was strange. There was no sound of music. There was no one playing. There was only the intolerably monotonous booming of a single pedal note, "'with an occasional muffled thud "'when the water-engine turned spasmodically "'to replenish the emptying bellows. Charnel, he shouted. "'Sharnel, what are you doing? "'Don't you know how late it is?' "'He paused, and thought at first "'that someone was answering him. "'He thought that he heard people muttering in the choir. "'But it was only the echo of his own voice, "'his own voice tossed from pillar to pillar "'and arch to arch, till it faded into a wail of "'Sharnel, Charnel, in the lantern." It was the first time that he had been in the church at night, and he stood for a moment overcome with the mystery of the place, while he gazed at the columns of the nave standing white in the moonlight, like a row of vast shrouded figures. He called again to Mr. Charnall, and again received no answer, and then he made his way up the nave to the little doorway that leads to the organ loft stairs. This door also was open, and he felt sure now that Mr. Charnall was not in the organ loft at all for had he been, he would certainly have locked himself in. The pedal note must be merely ciphering or something. Perhaps a book might have fallen upon it, and was holding it down. He need not go up to the loft now. He would not go up. The throbbing of the low note had on him the same unpleasant effect as on a previous occasion. He tried to reassure himself, yet felt all the while a growing premonition that something might be wrong, something might be terribly wrong. The lateness of the hour— the isolation from all things living, the spectral moonlight which made the darkness darker. This combination of utter silence with the distressing vibration of the pedal-note filled him with something akin to panic. It seemed to him as if the place was full of phantoms, as if the monks of St. Sepulchre's were risen from under their gravestones, as if there were other dire faces among them such as wait continually on deeds of evil. He checked his alarm before it mastered him. Come what might, he would go up to the organ-loft, and he plunged into the staircase that leads up out of the nave. It is a circular stair, twisted round a central pillar, of which mention has already been made, and though short, is very dark even in bright daylight. But at night the blackness is inky and impenetrable, and Westray fumbled for an appreciable time before he had climbed sufficiently far up to perceive the glimmer of moonlight at the top. He stepped out at last into the loft, and saw that the organ-seat was empty, The great window at the end of the south transept shone full in front of him. It seemed as if it might be day, and not night. The light from the window was so strong in comparison with the darkness which he had left. There was a subdued shimmer in the tracery where the stained glass gleamed Diaphanous, Amethyst and Topaz, Cardofrase and Jasper, a dozen jewels as in the foundations of the City of God, and in the midst, in the head of the centre light, shone out brighter than all, with an inherent radiance of its own the cognizance of the blandamers, the sea-green and silver of the nebulae coat. Westray gave a step forward into the loft, and then his foot struck against something and he nearly fell. It was something soft and yielding that he had struck, something of which the mere touch filled him with horrible surmise. He bent down to see what it was, and a white object met his eyes. It was the white face of a man turned up towards the vaulting, it stumbled over the body of Mr. Charnel, who lay on the floor with the back of his head on the pedal-note. Westray had bent low down, and he looked full in the eyes of the organist, but they were fixed and glazing. The moonlight that shone on the dead face seemed to fall on it through that brighter spot in the head of the middle light. It was as if the nebula coat had blighted the very life out of the man who lay so still upon the floor. End of chapter 14